Good morning. Thank you, Kevin and uh, Tom, for leading us in worship this morning. What a privilege it is that God has given us to gather together as saints on the Lord's Day every Sunday morning, and and it uh, truly is a blessing to be able to worship together with you and to, to bring you the Word this morning as well. As most of you know, I am preaching through the book of Colossians, and it's definitely been a challenge, but it has been rewarding. Um, just as a reminder, this epistle was written to the church in Colossae, which, by the way, is also the same church that, uh, that gathered in Philemon's house, in the book of Philemon. And it was written by the Apostle Paul after the teaching ministry, and we find this in Colossians chapter 1, Epaphras, he reaches out to the Apostle Paul and he visits him, telling him about these, these, uh, these teachings that have started to infiltrate the church. And Epaphras brings this report to Paul while Paul is in prison there in Rome. And this report, it included many false teachings that were creeping into the church. And Paul is concerned about this, and so he writes this letter. And what is interesting to know is how many of these false teachings the people face then are the same false teachings so often face now and throughout church history. And these false teachings include elements like uh, different types of human traditions and trusting in visions or extra-biblical revelations, um, worldly philosophy, unbiblical rules and regulations, and so on. Paul addresses all of these things in his epistle. And yet the good news is, that the solution remains the same as well. And we want to look at that solution today. So that's kind of a a quick little background to give a little bit of context. Warren Wearsby said, This is an age of syncretism. People are trying to harmonize and unite many different schools of thought and come up with a superior religion. Our evangelical churches are in danger of diluting the faith in their loving attempt to understand the beliefs of others, mysticism, legalism, Eastern religions, asceticism, and man-made philosophies are secretly creeping into the church. They are not denying Christ, but they are dethroning him and robbing him of his rightful place of preeminence, end quote. See, when we as Christians, when we add anything to Christ, we are, in effect, we are dethroning him. And when the Bible no longer becomes our final authority for our faith, We are dethroning him through that. Dethroning Christ through syncretism can be as simple as trying to sink any belief that you hold or I hold, which is not found in Scripture, and then treating that belief as though it is a Christian belief, such as having to maybe wear a certain style of clothing, or even like I would talk about last time when I preached in Colossians, believing exorcism is the proper way to deal with demonic forces. Syncretism or adding to Scripture can be deceptive because on the outside it may seem innocent enough and we don't recognize that we are dethroning Christ. But syncretism is deceptive because it isn't always easy to spot. The false teachers in the book of Colossians, they weren't trying to convince people into living a godless and immoral lifestyle. That would have been quite easy to mark and to avoid. But they were taking true teachings two true Christian teachings, and they were adding to them. They even believed the right things, but then they added beliefs to these right things. When we do that, we are dethroning Christ. We are removing him of his place of preeminence. 
As Christians, I think we are probably all guilty of this at some point and to some extent, probably every day, where we allow maybe even our emotions, our experiences to determine what we believe instead of the Word of God. And Paul even gives us examples in Colossians of experiential knowledge in the form of traditions, fine-sounding arguments, visions, obsession with angels, adding rules to Scripture, and all of these were plaguing, plaguing the Colossian church. Now, experiences and emotions are good things that God has given us, but we must not allow them to dictate truth for us because they can easily lead us astray and away from the truth. And Paul warns about this and cautions the Colossians against syncretism, adding something to Scripture. And he tells them that Christ really, truly is enough. Luckily, Paul does not only mention the dangers to the church, but he does mention the solution. And he tells us where to look and why. Our text this morning is found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. If you want to turn there, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. We'll start reading in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. These verses really are the center of the epistle. Up to this point, Paul has spotlighted spotlighted the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He has given us some deep theological understanding of who Jesus is. And verses 6 and 7 in our text here instruct believers to be rooted and established in this person of Christ. And this is what Paul is doing at this point. He has built a foundation of Christ in whom we are rooted as believers and upon whom we must be established. If you ever feel like you're not sure that you know enough about the person of Christ, Colossians chapter 1 and 2 is really a good place to start. Notice how in verse 6, it starts with therefore in the ESV. It says, therefore, in light of everything that I have told you about who Jesus Christ is, Therefore, walk in Him. Now, in these verses, Paul shifts from theology to application in our verses today. That we are to walk in Christ. The rest of chapter 2, Paul outlines some of the heresies plaguing the Colossian church and instructs the readers what not to do. Then in chapter 3, Paul instructs the readers what to do and what the proper response is in light of who Jesus Christ is. As a commentator notes, quote, Paul could never talk about theology for long without application, nor could he speak for long about the Christian life without allusion to the theology that buttresses and gives shape to that life, end quote. You see, God always calls believers to a response shaped by the theology that they have learned. If then Christ is who he says he is, and if they truly have received the Lord of the universe, there can only be one appropriate response. And that is to walk in Him. And I hope to show you this morning what it means to walk in Christ and why. 
First, by showing you how to walk in Him by being an established Christian. Second, walking in Him by avoiding deception. And third, walking in Him because Jesus Christ alone is worthy. Again, verse 6 reads, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we walk in Jesus Christ by being established as believers. As has been mentioned before, when we see the word therefore, we know it is pointing back to the previous verses for context. And because Jesus Christ is worthy, as the previous verses expound upon, really from verse 1 in chapter 1 all the way to this point, then we should walk in him and we should walk in him alone. If Christ really is who Paul says he is, who Paul says he is, and then we must walk in Him. We must look to Him. If He is who Paul says He is, then only Christ can meet all our meet all our spiritual needs. And it would be extremely foolish to look anywhere else, even though we so often do. Here in verse six, Paul in effect summarizes what he has been saying. What he has been saying that Jesus Christ really is Lord. This is the Lord that has been received by the Colossians and by all who call upon His name. Look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Back up a little bit to verse one, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is only something that God Himself could accomplish. And this is the Lord whom the Colossians received. The Colossians have not only received the doctrines of Christ, they have not merely heard of Christ, they have not merely heard the gospel, but they have received the person of Jesus Christ unto salvation, and they are truly saved. The hearers to whom the epistle was written today have truly been born again. They are redeemed. They are those who have been transferred out of the domain of darkness, and they have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son. But now... They seem to be in danger of adding their old ways to their new ways in Christ. But they have been redeemed. And since they have been redeemed by the Savior, Paul gives the first of two imperatives in our text, the first of two commands. We see in verse 8 is the other one where he starts with, see to it. But since they have been truly saved, Paul now calls on them and all true believers to response, which is to walk in Christ. And I want to look at this in two parts. We see continued in verse 7, how to walk in him by being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Then later we'll look at some verses that demonstrate how to walk in him. But first, let's have a, have a look at some verses that also speak of walking in Christ to get a better understanding of what it actually means. And you can, can turn there as well if you want, or you can... Uh, can listen to me reading them. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So here we see to walk in Christ means to walk in a manner that is worthy to, of Him, which is to bear fruit and increase in the knowledge of God. Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him 
by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So to walk in him is a newness of life. It is putting away the old and embracing the new. Romans 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And again, in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we see walking in Christ is not gratifying our fleshly desires. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So we see walking in Christ is doing good works. Ephesians 5 verses 1-2 to Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So to walk in Christ is to imitate God and walk in love just as Christ has loved us. And one more in Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So to walk in Christ is to walk in the light and not in the darkness. There are many more verses that speak of how we should walk as Christians, and all of which can be summed up in the first verse we read, Colossians 1, verse 10, which says, to walk in Christ is to walk worthy of Christ, to walk worthy of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're thinking it's hard, and I want you to know something. You know what? It is hard. When you look at what's happening in the world, especially in places like Afghanistan right now, Christians are being killed, they're being imprisoned for walking in Christ. It's not just that it's, it's actually hard to do it in the first place, to actually walk in a manner worthy of Christ, but it's hard because when we do, we'll be persecuted for it. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, never softens, cheapens, or downplays the level of commitment required from believers. For example, often when we when we, we, often we will downplay commitment when we really want something from someone or we try to convince someone of participation in something. Maybe when looking to hire a new employee, an employer, employer will downplay the commitment required. He might point out all the benefits, all the perks of the job, but he doesn't mention the difficulties of the job. He downplays the commitment because he really wants maybe to hire this person. Another example might be, we all know how, how Pastor Mike likes not to get uh, bush on him. So maybe we would really have to downplay the commitment involved in going moose hunting in order to get him to come along. But the thing is, our Lord does not cheapen the level of commitment required. Turn to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 33. 25 to 33. Luke fourteen twenty five. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. We won't go too deep into that passage, but the point is that there is a cost involved. And that needs to be considered. And I want to ask you, is your faith, your walk in Christ costing you anything? Or are we just comfortably living out our lives? I'm not saying go out and seek some form of persecution. Persecution isn't by any means the only type of cost in view here. But are you sacrificing your own selfish comforts for the benefit of other people? Are we helping others as we are able? Are we committed to cutting off fleshly desires and sins in our life and putting the things of our flesh away so, so, so to walk worthy? It isn't easy, but the command is still there. And on our own strength, we will never succeed. And thankfully, it is God who will give us the strength to do it. And how does he do that? By filling us with a knowledge of his will and increasing in the knowledge of God, and thereby we are strengthened by his power. Look again at Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. Colossians 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How? By being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. We are to be filled with a knowledge of his will in order to walk in a manner pleasing to him, and he will give us the strength to do it. Turn to 2 Peter verse 1. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power is granted to us through the knowledge of of him. That is where we can access this divine power. Walking worthy of Christ or walking in Christ starts by being established in the faith as taught, as we see in chapter in Colossians 2, verse 7, by being renewed by our minds. You see, what we believe in our minds about Christ, about faith, about Christianity, will then translate into how we walk. Being established in the faith isn't some emotional force in our chest, giving us some kind of a burning desire to walk in Jesus Christ but it is a mental marathon, a mental marathon of being renewed day by day through the teaching and reading of God's Word. We are to be Christ-like in our daily walk. 
and our, in our daily conduct and live a life pattern after Christ. And you know what? Even the godliest Christians sometimes don't always feel like reading the Bible or praying or going to church. But they do because they understand that walking in Christ and being a Christian is a life of commitment. Romans chapter 12 tells us how we can be transformed and renewed and is by the renewal of our mind. And we must live this life of commitment, of being renewed day by day through the teaching and reading of God's word. A life dedicated to walking in Christ must first be rooted and built up. It must be established in the faith which the Spirit of God accomplishes through the word, by the renewal of our mind, through a life committed to knowing him more. This commitment must start from the ground up. It starts at the root where the foundation must be laid. Looking again at Colossians 2, verse 7, we see that rooted is in the past tense, which which refers back to the initial conversion of the believer. This means the roots would be grounded and they would be set in place by Jesus Christ himself because it is Christ who saves. Christians have been firmly planted and they have been eternally planted because the roots symbolize what Christ has done and not what we have done or what we can do. And this also means just as the roots nourish the tree, Christ is our source of nourishment and spiritual food. Where do we find this nourishment of Christ? Well, just as any tree must have a structure of roots and any structure must have a solid foundation, so must the Christian who have who has a desire to be established and built up. And this foundation, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, tells us that this foundation was laid by, by the apostles and the prophets in the word of God. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These are the apostles and prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down the very words of God in the book we have today. And they have given us the foundation in the word. Being built up refers to a continuous and ongoing action. Acts 20 verse 32 says that we are built up through the word. Acts 20, verse 32 reads, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, among all those who are sanctified. In order, so you see, in order for our faith to be established, we must know who and what the object of our faith is. Our faith is not a mindless stab in the dark or grasping at things not known or not seen. But biblical faith is knowing what the promises of God are throughout Scripture and believing these promises of God and believing what Jesus Christ has done. And it will be very difficult to strengthen your faith if you do not read your Bible because your understanding of Jesus and all the promises will never expand and grow because it is there that we find these promises. And it is there that we build up our faith. Having this firm foundation is imperative for a believer in order to live a healthy and Christian life. I also need you to see something else here in Colossians 2 verse 7. That this building up isn't just to be done as a solo effort on the part of the Christian. 
Paul specifically mentions here, as you were taught. It is through sitting under sound and biblical teaching and preaching that Paul says that this is to be done. Let's look at a few other verses on this, starting at Romans 16, verse 25. Romans 16, 25. Reads, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So we see there, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, in 1 Timothy 4, 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith of the good doctrine that you have followed. And again, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And again, in Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what, what accords with sound doctrine. In 2 Timothy 3.14 again. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. So when the Bible speaks of teaching and sound doctrine, this assumes something. This assumes that the Christian must live their life in a community of other believers. And turning away from truth and wandering off into myths is the result of not being under sound preaching and teaching. It is very interesting how the Bible does not say that wandering off into myths is due to a lack of personal private study. Instead, the Bible clearly teaches it is the result of not heeding sound teaching and not being engaged in a personal Christian community. And this is the point that Paul makes in Colossians. Heed what you have been taught by Epaphras. Now, don't hear me saying that personal study isn't important. It absolutely is. But there is good reason that, Paul, that God has given us the church for our own personal good and sanctification. And the Bible always points you back to the church as a whole for your spiritual benefit and sanctification. Then as we grow in sanctification, we are being built up and established through the teaching of God's word. And then abounding in thanksgiving will become more and more an automatic response. Praise and thankfulness really is the only appropriate response that we can give to, our, to God and to his promises. And Paul, having instructed the hearers to walk in Christ and telling them how, he then continues in chapter 3 in Colossians, he gives examples of what this looks like. And he really does give us a good, a nice little list here of what walking in Christ actually looks like. If you want to turn to chapter 3 in Colossians, we'll read that together. And notice all the imperatives that he gives here, all the commands that he gives here. This, this truly is what it looks like to walk in Christ. Starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as Christ's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with a thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving through everything in the name of the Lord Jesus through him. And we'll end reading there. So Paul not only tells the hearers what to do, but he also explains what the end goal should look like. Looking back at chapter 2, Paul now transitions from the positive, do this, in verses 6 and 7, to the negative, avoid this, in verse 8. From good Bible and Christian tradition of building up in the faith through teaching and preaching of God's word to deceitful and harmful tradition. From walking in Christ to the things not according to Christ. Colossians 2.8 reads, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we walk in Christ by being an established Christian, and we walk in Christ by avoiding deception. <coughs> Excuse me. In order to fulfill the command in verse 7 of walking in Christ, there are things we must do, and there are things we must avoid. And Paul first warns this in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says that we are not to be deceived by plausible or fine-sounding arguments. And some people may think that they are being more holy or more spiritual by adding to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ, but in reality, they are being cheated out of the fullness of Christ because now not only are they trusting in what Christ did, but they are trusting what they can add to Christ. For some, it might be a certain way of, of dress. For some, it might be relying on extra-biblical revelation. For some, it might be a worldly wisdom and philosophy, all these things that Paul addresses in, in his epistle. And for some, it may simply be your own good works. And it is a dangerous trap. I know someone once told me that, sure, Jesus died for my sins, he did his part, but in order for me to be saved, I must now do my part. He was being robbed. He was not realizing that putting any trust in his own works turns those good works into filthy rags before the Lord. Adding anything to the work of Jesus Christ will rob you of the true joy found only in Christ. And Paul considers this deception serious business, and he directly confronts the teaching here. Although the exact nature of the, of the false teaching is unknown in Colossians chapter 2, but we can still see that it contains elements of philosophy and legalism in 2.16 and 17, and mysticism in 2.18 and 19, and asceticism in 2.20 to 23. You see, false teachings takes a person captive. 
Why, when Christ has set you free, would we, would we return to this yoke of captivity? Because Christ alone sets free, and anything else is a yoke of burden upon the Christian. We are not to return to the former things, to the things of the world. And the most dangerous thing that threads through the epistle that Paul is refuting is the idea that Christ isn't sufficient. The false teachers don't argue that Jesus Christ's work on our behalf was useless. They aren't arguing that, what, that, the, that Jesus actually didn't do what he said he did. But they are adding to that work of Jesus Christ. They seem to believe that, that philosophy is the highest wisdom and knowledge, whereas Paul argues repeatedly in the, in the epistle that all wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus Christ, which effectively means that the philosophy that the false teachers were touting is nothing but empty deceit. Philosophy, the word philosophy means literally it's just a love of wisdom, which is why Paul reiterates so often that only in Christ can true wisdom be found, and there is no hidden knowledge apart from Jesus Christ. Now, philosophy in itself is obviously not wrong, but when it is put up on a pedestal as though you need it in order to attain a true and full spirituality, as though philosophy or some kind of higher wisdom in itself is where this knowledge is found, then it becomes dangerous and it becomes worldly. And when one thinks of a philosopher, the type of person you often think about is somebody who is wise and somebody who is knowledgeable and sophisticated. And philosophers are usually known for asking deep questions about life, about who is man and, and what is man and what is our purpose here. And yet most philosophers throughout history have not been believers. Now imagine these, these apparently wise men grapple and provide seemingly wise answers to life's questions, yet they don't believe in the God who gives the answers to life's questions. They have become as fools. The simplest child who believes in God and reads his Bible is wiser about who man is and what our purpose is than the greatest unbelieving philosopher. They refuse to accept what God, that God is real and that he is mankind's ultimate purpose and that he provides all the answers. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this is the situation that Paul is writing to. It was a philosophy that removed God from his rightful place on the throne. And Paul needs to remind them again and again that Christ really is enough and that he really is preeminent. And he really is the ruler of the universe. And he really is the creator and sustainer. And he really is fully and truly God. Apart from God, all philosophy is foolishness. Since philosophy sounds wise, Paul even calls it plausible arguments in, in verse 4 of chapter 2. But it is empty. The philosophy the faulties were touting was empty deceit. And Paul describes it as a human tradition and demonic and anything not according to Christ. You see, false teachings are really anything that are handed down by men through human tradition. Apart from what, apart from what the Bible says, whether that be a worldly philosophy, a works-based salvation, or whether that be relying on extra-biblical revelation, Satan is a deceiver who can disguise himself as a beautiful angel of light. Seeing as he is now disarmed, all that is left for Satan to do is to deceive. And this so-called higher knowledge and the demonic influence behind it when compared to the preeminence of Christ is in reality basic or elementary. It is simplistic and it is immature. Satan can and does wreak havoc on a believer's life through deception, which is why the Bible warns about being on guard. 
But that is also why we just spend time looking at what it means to be to walk in Christ, to be an established Christian. The more we are being built up, the more we will be established in the faith through wisdom and knowledge, the less chance of us being deceived. And these traditions are according to the world and not according to Christ. Often worldliness, and you often hear it, especially around here, that worldliness is often explained in such a way that anyone who disagrees with my tradition is considered worldly like how to dress or maybe a certain style of hair. But the ironic thing is, is that anyone who brings a teaching contrary to the word of God, that in itself is a human tradition and that in itself is worldly. When the Bible actually uses the term worldly, it doesn't refer to our physical outward appearance, as is often assumed, how long our hair is or how our clothes look. Worldliness refers to the heart. Do you have sin in your heart? like an unbeliever who lives in the world. That is worldliness. Do you have anger? Do you have lust, covetousness, selfishness? Those are the things that make you a worldly person. And adding rules to Scripture is in itself worldly because it is not according to Christ. Scanning down to Colossians 2, verse 20, we read that if Christ, if with Christ... You died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why? Why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are being used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They appear wise in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Yet we really are more easily deceived than we think. And one example that I sometimes use, or sometimes even think about or consider, is questions surrounding the events of the birth of Christ. Like, where was Jesus born? Often the answer is a stable. What kind of animals were there? Often, maybe a sheep, maybe some oxen, maybe a donkey. How many wise men were there? Well, usually there were three, right? Was Jesus a baby when the wise men arrived? Well, sure he was. Yet, the Bible doesn't give us any of those details. There's nothing in Scripture about any of those details, not even that Jesus was born in a stable. And the Bible says Jesus actually could have been up to two years old when the wise men arrived, and the Bible doesn't say how many wise men there were. Many theologians actually even believe that that Jesus was laid in the manger in someone's home being used as a crib, because that's the only information that the Bible actually gives us, that Jesus was laid in a manger. Yet these things we automatically believe because of the nativity scene that we see every year at Christmas time. It is a human tradition. And very often we believe these things and we assume them to be, to be biblical. Now, there's nothing wrong with the nativity scene. Don't, don't hear me say that. But what I am pointing out is how easily we can be led to believe something when, that, to believe something that we think is biblical when in reality it isn't. And you know what? We have no problem shrugging something like that off and changing our view to be more biblical surrounding the events of the birth of Christ. But people will often get defensive when it comes to more serious matters like salvation. The areas where that we need to be extra careful to be on guard, to make sure that we don't add anything to Scripture, 
That's for some reason where we start getting defensive. When the question is asked, how can a person become saved? Often I have heard the answer to be, well, you must accept Jesus into your heart or you must say the sinner's prayer. And to be clear, I'm not saying if this is the terminology that you use or have used that you are not a Christian, but what I am saying that often those, those answers, often those answers are said in response to a question, to that question of how to be saved, as if those answers are the gospel itself. And, and the answer starts and it ends with you must accept Jesus into your heart. And it should worry us because the Bible never says that that's what a person must do. Those are not instructions that are found anywhere in Scripture. And yet how can a person be saved is a single most important question that can ever be asked on this earth. So does it not deserve the most biblical answer, more so than any other question on the face of the earth? A person's eternal destiny could depend upon, could depend upon it receiving a biblical answer. The gospel is all about what Christ did to save us and not what we must do. And it is the gospel that must always be the answer. It must start and it must end with the gospel, with the work of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ is the answer to how man can become saved. And the work of Christ is that because God is a holy and perfect God, that he must demand absolute holiness and perfection. Otherwise, God himself wouldn't be holy and perfect. Holiness and perfection must demand holy and perfection. And be, but because of our wickedness and rebellion against an eternal and holy God, we deserve an eternal punishment. But because God is merciful and long-suffering and he is full of grace, the Father sent his Son to live that perfect life that we couldn't in our place. But since God is also a just judge, he must punish sin. When you think about even in terms of a human court of law, a good and just judge punishes wrongdoing. He sends the thief to prison. If he didn't do that, he would not be a good and just judge. Therefore, because God is a good and just judge, he must also punish wrongdoing. Or he would not be a just judge. God must punish sin. And he punished sin by taking the sin of everyone who ever existed, who places their trust in Christ, by taking their sins and placing them upon Jesus Christ when he was hanging on the cross, and then he punished Christ as if he had done those sins instead of punishing us. And then he took the perfect and righteous life that Christ lived, and he places it upon the believer. And we have exchanged our sin for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that now when God looks at you, he says that we are accepted, not by anything that you have done or what I have done, but simply because he sees us. And when he looks at us now, he sees what Christ has done. And if you are not saved today, you can be. Trust in this finished work of Christ, not in yourself. You have no sin in your life that is too great for God. It is Christ himself who will bear that sin. That one sin in your life that you think is too big for God. It is God himself who bears it. There is nothing too big for him. The Bible promises that all who come to him will be saved. 
You too can receive Christ for salvation, not because you have accepted him, but because God has then accepted you. This is the good news of the gospel. And as we see in verse 9, Jesus really is God incarnate, and he is worthy of all praise and glory for what he has done for us. And as we see in verse, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2, which brings us now to our third and final point, that in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We walk in him because he is worthy. He is worthy of all praise and all glory for what he has done. So we have seen that we must be committed in our walk. We must be established in order to walk in Christ and to avoid deception. And we must walk in him because he is worthy. The very reason we are to walk in Christ, to walk according to Christ, is because the fullness of deity dwells in him. And Paul makes a very important point here to the hearers, that if you attempt to add anything to Christ, then you are not, then you are in effect not believing that the fullness of deity truly dwells in him. That Christ is not really enough because the only one and true deity can ever be enough. You are not believing that Christ is really enough because the only one and true deity can, can be enough for anything and everything. The deity here is the fullness of God, not merely just the Son person of God, but he is the fullness of God. Verse one or Chapter 1, verse 19 says that Jesus is the fullness of God. This is a clear reading on the doctrine of the Trinity. God isn't made up of three different parts, but God is one nature in three persons. So the fullness of God is found in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So God the Father is fully God, God the Son is fully God, and God the Holy Spirit is fully God. We have three distinct persons in one nature. And we need to be wary of, of human illustrations trying to explain the Trinity because there is none that actually comes close to describe it. And every illustration is, in fact, a specific form of heresy found throughout history, throughout church history on the views of the Trinity. And it is important to understand Jesus' physical nature here, that the deity dwells in him bodily. He is the one who walks before us. He is God in the flesh. He walked on earth with a body. He was tempted while in human form. He defeated temptation in human form. He was crucified in body. He rose again physically and not as a spirit. Luke 24, 39, Jesus tells his disciples after he was, he was raised from the dead, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus himself had flesh and bones when he was raised from the dead. He was born bodily. We will be raised as he, was re- as he was raised in bodily form. He lived bodily just as we do, and we will be raised bodily just as he was. And this implies for us that we are not just a spirit, merely living in a body, as some Christians point out. But we, like, but we will have a physical body for eternity in heaven, just like Christ. We should take care of our bodies as we take care of our spirit, because our bodies are just as much as just as much who we are as our spirits are. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't given a different body than what he had from before he was buried. It was the same body because that is who he is and was. So this means that Jesus is worthy of us using our physical bodies in a manner that glorifies him because we are filled in him. We see the language of being in Christ over and over again in Colossians. 
We are to walk in Him because we are filled in Him. Colossians 3.3 says that if for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our very life belongs to Him and is kept by Him. Jesus also talks in this manner in His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but I ask also, but I also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christ's prayer here is for all believers, past, present, and future, and he prays that believers will be one, that they will be unified, But then notice he speaks of how he is in the Father and the Father is in him and then amazingly that they also may be in us so that believers are in the Father and in the Son, wrapped up in the Trinity. Think about that. Because Christ is the fullness of God, the ruler of heaven and earth, the preeminent king of the universe, the creator of all that exists, the sustainer of all that exists, that Christ, this Christ is the one in whom our lives are hidden. Contemplate that wonderful truth. The sustainer of the universe is also your sustainer. Paul contrasts the authority of Christ here in verses 9 and 10 in Colossians chapter 2 with the false things that he, with the false things that he just mentioned in verse 8. And again, back in, in uh, Colossians 1 verse 10, Paul mentions that, that Christ is over the spiritual beings and all authority, and he repeats it now again, that Christ is the head over rulers and authority, over all spiritual forces. And this would have been helpful for and encouraging for the Colossians because they still lived in fear of demonic forces. But, but Christians do not need to live in fear because demonic forces have no power where the Son of God reigns. After all, Christians have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son. There is no question that believers find that the believer finds his all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the head of all authority. He is the supreme ruler. And to look anywhere else than Christ is to cheat yourself. There is no true joy, no, no, no true comfort to be found in anything or anywhere else. Don't put your joy in your circumstances, your lack of joy in your circumstances. Sometimes your circumstance is difficult. But look to Jesus. Look past your circumstance to this true source of joy. Don't settle for anything else. Don't cheat yourself by relying on your own comfort, your own tradition, or whatever it might be. Rely on Jesus Christ, and he will sustain you as he has promised. Because we are in him, and because Jesus is the fullness of of deity, we will have our fill in him, and there is nothing outside of him that we need. Let's pray. Father, I come before you, and I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, God, that not only do you command us to walk in you, but you are the one who gives us the strength, and you're the one who enables us to do it through the knowledge of your word. God, I ask that you would help us to grow in you, help us to to be committed believers, help us to understand that living the Christian life is a life of commitment and it is a, a, a mental marathon of, of uh, being renewed day by day. And Lord, I ask that you would continue to work in each one of our lives. May all the praise and all the glory go to you because you are worthy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.